1: Welcome to the Francisca show podcast, a part of jewishkofeas.com, the show on where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back, Francisans, and I'm hoping you're having a great week off if you are observing Yeshiva Week on the American side of the world. The reason I am focusing on this topic is because so many Jews from Jews don't think of keeping kosher as a hard thing, and it's probably because we're so privileged for the people living in places that kosher food is so easily available, and that's a great thing. However, do we know the actual halachos for when we're not in our own communities, for perhaps when we're traveling or when we are stuck somewhere. Well, if you know me, you know that I grew up in Moscow, Russia, where we did not have hashgachos on products. Well, we did have hashgacha, but when you would walk into a supermarket, regular products did not have hechsherem on them. We had a list just like many European cities, and the list would be updated month to month or quarter to quarter. So personally, I never took that so much for granted, but now that I do live in the United States, I find it super convenient to have so many kosher products available. And I wanna make another disclaimer, this probably has nothing to do with Israeli hashgahos. I know Israeli hashgahos are a lot more complicated than that, fruits and vegetables are not automatically kosher. So if you are living in Israel, I still hope you find this episode interesting. Regarding last week's episode, we had so much feedback and it came from all different angles and perspectives. And I really appreciate the depth and the the thought process that so many of you have. It has really brought out that this topic of Jewish divorce is truly complicated. There's so much to be done and it's so complicated and this needs to be continued as a conversation. I encourage you to keep reaching out with your ideas, just like you do for other episodes. Let's keep this going. Let's keep creating these conversations and really making an impact and changing how we think about things and how we do things. And if you stick around until the end, you will find out what's coming up next week. So enjoy the show. Welcome back to The Francisco Show. Today with us, we have Rabbi Zev Schwartz, who is the founder of the IKC Hashgacha, International Kosher Council. He lives in the U.S., but spends a lot of his time traveling. I've had several conversations leading up to this episode to do some research. This was inspired by a conversation we had a few weeks or months ago with Elon Kornblum talking about the kosher industry. We are here to talk with a controversial Hersher, the rabbi who represents this hashgacha, and I'd like to hear the inside scoop on what goes into hashgacha. How do different communities approach it? Where are there loopholes that are being used? Is there consistency? And what do Jews need to know about Hashgacha when they are choosing to use one versus another and pay the price, obviously? And I would like to mention that we are primarily focusing on the U.S. Hashgacha, and we're not touching Israel or other countries. OK, great. So welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's a tremendous honor. I've gotten to know you since you contacted me, and I actually went ahead and listened to many of your podcasts. And I will say, much respect. You guys, you do a great job. And I'm very honored to be one of the guests on the Francesca show. So.
1: Thank you so much. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into this industry? Which yeshivas did you go to? And how did you end up in Hashgacha?
0: I, I learned tells in Tel's yeshiva in Cleveland. I went to Rabdavit Brisk in, in uh, Eretz Yisrael, Yushalayim. I went back to Tel's. I was in Tel's and Coil. And then I went to, to teach in as a Rebbe in, in, in yeshiva. I ended up teaching first job in Los Angeles. While I was, after I taught for like a few years in Los Angeles, a friend of mine who taught with me asked me if I wanted to do a few days or like some free time during vacation and start doing Ashkocha because he was in charge of the OU in Los Angeles. So I said, fine, why not? And that was my beginning. He introduced me to Ashkocha. He kind of guided me to get started. He would like send me on uh, visits to like easier companies and eventually... Get me familiar with some of the more complicated ones. Obviously, I learned halachas that, that are regarding in Shokanara and all the things that would be necessary to be able to paskin. And I end up becoming a rab eventually, and, and had to do, have to paskin halachas. But when you go to visit a factory, you're pretty much just the eyes and ears of what you're seeing, and you're reporting back to the agency. So you're pretty much following their direction. When you first do Ashkaka, you're not paskin anything, really. So it's pretty much with all the the learning that you do, it's an idea, though, you have to become familiar with factories, with a little bit more food science, a little bit more production and machinery and things like that, and then follow the directions of exactly what you're told to do. If you have a question, you can't decide on your own, for the most part. You have to call the office to find out what you need to do about this thing that's not really marked or this thing that happened and and that. I did that for for quite a few years uh, as a part-time thing. I took a sabbatical from teaching and i did it full time then went back to teaching years later when i became a rev i decided and my brother at the same time also decided he wanted to open cuz he was doing some ashgaha work also we decided we're going to start our own agency it initially it was going to be a consulting thing which is going to help factories find the right ashgaha for themselves cuz the cuz a lot of companies don't know where to go a smaller place may not need to spend big money on on a bigger ashgaha but they want to know what's a reliable, maybe local Ashkacha or things for themselves. It started like that. Some of the companies asked us, hey, why don't you just do it for us, yourselves? And so that's how I started doing Ashkacha. It became very helpful when I was in Santa Barbara. There was no Ashkacha in Santa Barbara, so I did a few things there locally. And that was that. When I moved to New York, I thought, there's no way in New York that I'm going to go ahead and do Ashkacha because they don't need it really in New York. But then when I started to become familiar with it. Manhattan especially, and talked to some restaurant owners, some Jewish ones, they were having difficulties getting cash Tell me why. Well, one of the reasons was because it was very, became very complicated for them unnecessarily, and it was expensive, very expensive.
1: What makes it complicated?
0: Well, in other words, some people would come in and perhaps request, require things that maybe w- won't be necessary, or the way it was being presented was presented in, in a much more difficult way than necessary to present. For example, you could uh, come in and tell everybody, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, or you could explain it a lot more calmly and show them how it's not that complicated, how it's, you know, yes, you, you'll you have to do this and that, but it's the way it's presented. Part of the of the thing was that I realized that they're customers of mine and I they have to be treated as customers rather than I'm doing them a big favor and they can ha- have them do anything the way I want them to do it, right? It was, it was kind of the more the mentality and, and the way to approach it. But one of the things that I realized by working for many of, of the other certifying agencies was that we were veering away a bit from halacha. Things that were not necessarily necessary halachically were being demanded of, of restaurants. And that was another reason why certain things became... Very expensive when not necessary. For example, a vegan restaurant was told they have to have hashgachah to meet its constant supervision, right? Well, why would a vegan restaurant need constant supervision if they're really basically all doing vegetables? And and halacha has no mention of, of the concept of constant supervision. It's not in halacha. Halacha talks about what hashgachah is: surprise visits going in and out called yotzav and ichnas, and where where the prisoner never knows when you're going to come. They're always going to be on their best behavior.
1: You have built. The name of being a more controversial hasher, you also built a name around certifying vegan restaurants, and I would love to go into the halachic aspect of it, how you go to it. But one more thing I want to add to this, the coming in and out, it works with Ye also. It's the same idea. If you know your husband might come, it might not be. I actually witnessed a situation like that. And the husband kept saying, so I'll come, you know, I'll pop in. And he's like, no, don't slap all the way. It's like, no, this is the loophole. If you think I'm come.
0: Exactly. No, no, And you're 100% right. It's a very good. I never thought of it like that. But it's an excellent example of the same concept being used many, many places mm-hmm. in, in halacha, where obviously the yichud is wrong. But... It becomes allowed because there's a fear that, the, the, you know, oh, you leave the door open or whatever you're supposed to do, right? But the idea is that mm-hmm. the mind is thinking that someone may be coming, and therefore they act differently. Like my father would say when he owned the business, he, he would never tell the people that he's going to be away for two hours. He'll tell them, I'll be right back. Even though he's away. he knew he'll be away for two hours, they always think he's coming. Exactly. So, so, so the point is, I saw many different things that were not valid halakhically, not necessary halakhically. For that example. became the and Ichnas, right? The, okay. the So what happens when you demand Hashgachotimides? You demand that the restaurant owner pay a lot more than necessary. So you're literally taking money, hard-earned money, from a owner of, of a business where it's not necessary on, on something that you claim we have to institute because just to make sure. But the Torah doesn't do that. The Torah is a balance. The Torah is a, is a specifically amazing balance When you mess with the balance, you mess with the Torah. The Torah says, don't add and don't take away. Why? Because adding is just as bad as taking away. So, similarly, when it comes to not being open Shabbos, now a restaurant is allowed to sell, a business is allowed to sell their business for Shabbos. It's in Gemara, talks about it. It's in Halacha. It was instituted for the purposes of allowing a Jewish owner to be able to remain solvent and and not have to close the business down and lose everything if you close it for Shabbos, but not be owning it by selling it to a non-Jew. And the idea that, well, a restaurant's different, but why is restaurant different? If halacha doesn't make a distinction between a restaurant and another business, so if halacha doesn't make a distinction, then why should they? And at the same time, cause a restaurant in Manhattan especially to shut down for Shabbos or not give them much when halachically it's 100% valid to allow them to sell it on Shabbos. Now, there's obviously other things you need to do, to make sure, yes, you no know, Jewish people are cooking on Shabbos, you know, whatever, but halakhically, it's valid to do it, so why not do it? The same thing is true when it comes to koshering. The halakha is that you can do either one of three things. Either it sits clean for 24 hours, the thing, and then whatever is absorbed in the walls of the utensil gets, what's called pogum, gets ruined, and, it, and if it does, if you use that thing to cook again, then it, whatever comes out of it is going to ruin the food rather than help it, so that's okay. You can actually be pogum it by putting a harsh chemical in it and that'll ruin whatever's inside the, the walls even if it's not 24 hours or you can kosher it and boil it over also you, even if it's not 24 hours. Now, maybe it's good to do both but it's not necessary 100% to do all of it. So to demand a company shut down 24 hours and do and do a koshering, be, be it to do all those three things, that's not necessarily, you know, why do that? You're causing a business to lose 24 hours when you don't need to do that. Now, They say it's it's a good practice because just in case you have a backup. okay. but you got to balance things. So I saw that emotion was playing more of a role in in Kashris rather than halacha itself.
1: Can we talk about the vegan loopholes that make giving a heksher on something with very little involvement? Can you talk about the halachic background to that?
0: Sure. Here's a similar thing, too. If a restaurant was 100% vegan all the time and there was nothing non-kosher in there because it was always vegan, why would you necessitate the kosher before you make them kosher? There are people that do that, but why? There's no need to do that. If they bought used equipment, okay, it's a different story. If they brand new equipment, they were always vegan, and you see their ingredients, everything they were using was was not a problem. Then why would you necessitate them to kosher? That's another example, by the way, of something which is not logically valid and being instituted. Why did I start doing vegan restaurants? Primarily because places that I was living in, I lived in Vancouver, BC, I lived in Santa Barbara, and other places where there wasn't necessarily a strong enough market for a restaurant to be completely kosher, like kosher meat or kosher dairy, whatever, pizza shop or something, because there's not enough people that would actually support it. So I just thought, you know, let's try to go the point of of least resistance. Let's try to find an idea of a place that is almost kosher and they won't have to do much changes, they will be able to make, you know, change the the wine vinegar, maybe change a couple of things that maybe are are issues and then they'll be kosher certified. It'll benefit the community that way. That's how I started. And I I was able to do, I did like in Vancouver, something like that. And maybe I was able to help some other, some places to, to get started with restaurants that were vegan. Because when I moved to New York and I saw that there was a need still for some kosher places, especially in Manhattan. I started going to vegan restaurants and uh, presenting to them this idea. And I found, in general, that people who were vegan appreciated the idea of kosher. They looked at it as another stamp of approval. And so they appreciated what it meant, things like gluten-free or things like soy-free, whatever, all the different frees. And they figured, okay, And many of them were very... uh, amenable to try it. Now, it's not that I could have done every single one because certain places w- wanted to cook with wine and there was no way they were going to change to cook with, with, with kosher wine. Okay. So we left them, went to another one. There are some places, for example, it used a lot of processed canned vegan foods that don't have ashkafa. So even though it may be kosher, I wasn't going to go ahead and certify something like that without being able to know what goes on in those factories that manufacture those kind of things. So I was looking for places that did a lot of preparation of products on their own.
1: Let's talk about the halachic issues. Like there are for sure people listening to this who are like, what? You could walk into a place where you don't have someone with a long beard and a yarmulke standing in the back and eat there. How can that be? And just to give a little framework here, obviously, you said you can't take away, you can't, you can't add or take away from Torah. Chumras have existed always and people embrace chumras and are very happy and we're not going to just debunk them and say they're horrible. But if you think about anything you do in life, you can cover your hair with a tichel, you can get a shetel, a synthetic one, and then you could get a $10,000 shetel. So same with ashgachos. And sometimes you need different types, but there's basic halacha, the minimum, the requirements. And then you can go and enhance or hold of higher chumras. Sometimes you are stuck in a country or somewhere where there is no food. You should know what your options are. What is halachically kosher and what's not? So the floor is yours.
0: The paraphrase of Gemara where the Roman soldier comes and says he wants to eat Torah on one foot. No, <laughs> no, but but we're, we're going to try to give some ideas without being able to cover everything because it sometimes is a bit complex. But the point is, first of all, to keep in mind that the difference between a vegan restaurant and a kosher restaurant is there's only really two major differences. Okay, that everything that's vegan is kosher except for two things. Number one, wine and grape products like that, grape juice, wine, things like that. and number two, vegan restaurants are not mockpit. They don't really care about whether it's prepared on utensils that were used for something non-kosher or non-vegan, meaning even dairy or something like that. They don't care about that. And, and a matter of fact, they don't care about putting, for example, vegan and non-vegan together in the oven at the same time. That's halakh is an issue. Right. Right. Which is, again, back back to the process. So that's one of the reasons why you just can't accept processed vegan foods without knowing what goes on in the factory. Because if they use the utensils for things that are not kosher, for them, they don't care. It can still be vegan. Right. But besides that, logically, they're very, very close. So it's a lot easier to maintain a status of kosher when it's already starting, where it's 98 percent already kosher before you even start. And especially that nowadays, if they do want to use vinegars and wines, there's a lot of very good suppliers and producers of all kinds of things, organic and whatever they may want. And it's easy enough, especially in New York, to switch out for, for a kosher substitute. And the people who are vegan are, are, many of them, very strict about what they're doing. So yes, they, you may have some that, that are not as, that they're doing it for the, for the show. Okay, it's true. But you have people doing kosher for the show too.
1: The vegan establishment is very comfortable with being very careful about odd things because of people's preferences and
0: needs. And they're very particular about things, even even more than kosher. For example, they don't believe that something is is, is batal They don't believe that something gets lost in the majority. They don't believe in that at all. Or batal bashishim, They don't believe if if there's a drop of something that could be in there, it's no good for them. So, in some ways, that's also helpful. But again, you can't just accept something without knowing what questions to ask because you do have for example there was a place in manhattan that was allowing a vegan place that was allowing their next door neighbor or meat restaurant to use their ovens when, when they had overflow and they would come in from the alley and put it in well oh that, that that's a problem for us because the ovens will become not, not kosher from that situation right or you have many places that are sharing kitchens shared called, workspace
1: um, for kitchens.
0: Yeah, yeah, but there's a a name for it. I forgot Uh, where they have those areas, and that would be that's a very serious situation because you have to make sure that there's a a strong enough separation. But you you could walk into a place that is vegan, and if you know what to ask, yes, you may be able to eat certain things there, for sure. Now, just just to go back to your first thing though, when you talked about so I just wanted to point out there's different types of kumars and there's different rights that people have to initiate a humra for everyone. And there's a different way of, of expressing a humra rather than saying that you have to follow it because this is what we do. In other words, Gemara is very careful to use a different language for something which is permitted and prohibited midr from the rabbis, and things which are permitted and prohibited according to the Torah. For something which is Torah permitted, it's, it's mutter. If it's Torah... Forbidden, it's Aser. And for the rabbin, the rabbis, it's it's Ha'iv and Pater. The Torah is very careful to let you know exactly what is what so that you don't make the mistake of thinking that something is rabbinic when it's Torah or vice versa. Similarly, the the original sin, which is that Adam, when he told over to Chava, to, to Eve, The rules about the tree said you're not allowed to touch it when God just said you're not allowed to eat from it. So he made a chumrah. That was the original sin. That caused all the problems because what he should have done was God said don't eat from it. I think it would be a smart idea if we also didn't touch it because we can avoid perhaps coming into problems. So there's a way to express a khumra, And there's also certain chumrahs that are completely unnecessary. And certain chumrahs that are. You can't just make up a khumra on your own and say, oh, I decide I'm going to do that. I'm going to walk on one foot because I, I'm going to hop on one foot as a khumra.
1: So the halachic requirements. Let's go into those.
0: So when it comes to vegan restaurants, obviously, you have to check for bugs. You have to make sure the rest, the vegetables are clean. Luckily, you have to make sure most vegan restaurants actually... You check because they don't want to serve bugs. They don't like it. No restaurant wants to serve bugs. You know, no restaurant wants to have the scene from Ratatouille where the mayor comes and eats the cockroach. Nobody wants that to happen. So no restaurant wants to serve bugs. But vegan restaurants for sure don't want to serve bugs. So they're all cleaning. They're all they're all cleaning, especially the vegan. But you want to make sure that they adapt their, their program to clean exactly how we want them to be. And they're all very willing to do that whenever you ask them to, especially when you tell them, that this will ensure better that there's going to be no bugs. Another khumrah that people don't allow raspberries, or they don't allow strawberries because they're impossible to check. There's no such thing as that. There's no such thing. I know that I've never seen a, a bug in a, in a store-bought raspberry in my life, and even in a strawberry, never. So because of that, you're going to prohibit a restaurant from doing the due diligence, washing the raspberries, and being able to serve it? Makes no sense i
1: have i've seen bugs in raspberries and strawberries not in right. them but if you soak them then the bugs come out
0: right so 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 then you then you wouldn't use them would you
1: well technically after the bugs are out you can use them
0: all right i'm saying but what i'm trying to say is, I, if you check you check for them it's fine i understand what you're saying but i'm just saying that it's not as big a problem i i'm always ready to learn because if if I'm based upon my experience and by what other people have said, other rabbis and other people I've talked to. But if, if enough people tell me that there is a problem, then I'm willing to reformulate my opinion and look at the situation. I just know from my experiences, when I, I do check berries when I buy them, they open up the without you know, open up the scene inside if there's anything there and I don't see. And then I rinse them and wash them and but not like you say power wash, but just basically rinse them nicely and then check again, check the water, and that's it. That's how I, it's always been done since I was a kid, since my, my parents, and I, and I never saw anybody else do different. But, but my point I'm saying is that it's just an example for me of something which is a little bit over, over-exaggerated. But okay, I may be wrong, and if I'm wrong, then I will look into it differently. So when a person goes to a vegan restaurant, let's go back to that now. So because we went off with the khumra topic, and I'm just saying that khumra's not everybody can institute a Qumra, and not everybody can say that everybody has to follow it. You can institute a khumra and say that we think it's a good idea. And therefore, we recommend that you have hashgacha tamiris. You can say that. And you tell people, halacha doesn't demand it. We think it's a good idea. Okay. But you can't go ahead and say any hashgacha that doesn't do it is, is not right. You can say that for whatever reason, we believe it's better best not to sell a restaurant for Shabbos. But halachically, it, it, it's okay. There's such a thing as a chumrah. Now, no one has the power right now to institute a kumrah for the whole Jewish people. No such thing. There was no rabbi that had the power to do that for thousands of years right? But is there recommendations? Of course you can make recommendations, definitely. But it has to be, you Understood. Know,
1: Okay, what are the next things?
0: When it comes to the bugs, right, you have to make sure that that gets obviously done right. And then we have to make sure, of course, that the utensils are not being shared with any other place that would be not vegan and not kosher. And then you have to make sure that they understand what's the straight with the ingredients. And that when you go to check, for instance, even though they know that uh, they're not supposed to have grapes but or grape juice, but they, they may buy, which happens, jam that is that's sweetened with grape juice and not realize that it's a problem. So there is a need to check and to look a little bit deeper than just like the statement that we have no, we don't, we don't use any wine vinegar or we don't use any, you don't know, cook with wine. Okay, but you may buy products that, for example, there was, there was, this was in the beginning when we first started, there was restaurants that would not realize it. And they would think that they could use jam that's sweetened with grape juice or they can use uh, fruit juice that's mixed with grape juice, even though hundred percent fruit juice, they think it's okay without a scholar. That's that's the problem.
1: Okay, let's talk about Bishelakam.
0: Right. I was just about to get to that. Okay, the next great. thing is and the next thing that is an issue with a vegan restaurant, or any restaurant is Bishelakum. So in other words it means a Jew a, a non Jew cooking the food. Let's say meat restaurants, for example, we have to make sure that the Jew is involved in the cooking depending upon like, what it involved means, and that's the difference between Sardic and Ashkenazi Jews, how much involvement is inv- it, it means, but it has to be some involvement. For Ashkenazin Jews, it's enough if a Jew lights a fire. For Shardik Jews, not so much, right? But there's ways to deal with it, but it ha- you have to make sure that that's something which you do. When it comes to a vegan restaurant, so the question always is, well, what about a non-Jew cooking? What do you do? So there are two distinct qualifications that... Would allow a non-Jew to cook for a Jew. Number one is anything which is edible raw. If it's edible raw, and then the non-Jew cooks it, it doesn't because it doesn't affect the status. Or even if it's edible as it is. You know, let's say, for example, it's partially cooked and finished up by a non-Jew. So the fact that non-Jew didn't do the whole cooking, parboiled or was ready to a little bit go at the t- at the time that it was. Similar idea. It is raw, not necessarily edible raw, but edible in the state that it became. Because people do buy products that are already parboiled and they finish it up, right? And so it's, it's edible if it's parboiled. Maybe that maybe it's not the most delicious, but it's edible. So that would mean that the Jew, if the juice finishes it up, it's not edible. And that is very very easy to understand. There's, there's no gray. It's black and white. Is it up or raw? Is it edible raw? No problem. Easy enough. And in a vegan restaurant, you're dealing with 99, 98% of the products in a vegan restaurant are vegetables, edible raw, even tofu, seitan, those things are edible.
1: And you've said you've eaten raw tofu when you were stuck somewhere and it wasn't delicious, but you ate it.
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly. Raw seitan. Now, there is maybe some preparation involved, but again.
1: Right. The second thing.
0: The second thing now is what's called Ola Shochem which means is a fit for a king's table. Now, there are about three items in a vegan restaurant that are not edible raw, and that would be beans, rice, and potatoes, sweet potatoes, things like that. So those are things which are really not edible raw. Now, for things that are not edible raw, they have to be, in order for it to be a problem of an cooking, they have to be what's called al shokumulakan, which means served on a king's table. Now, that is something which is controversial, which is not straight up easy to, to understand. It has a lot of differences of opinions with, from the commentaries, from the halakhic authorities over the years. So, but just to make it simple, and then we'll go back a little bit more more devolved. All those items that are not edible raw, that we are served in a vegan restaurant, all those items have halakhic opinions that consider it not to be fit for a king's table. And all these big major certifying agencies rely on that. For example, the OU allows Lay's potato chips that are not officially Yisrael, and they're literally cooked in oil, cooked in water. Makes no difference, right? It's the same cook, and it's not a problem. Or canned beans, you you, you buy in the can that are not cooked, they're not Israel, they're and not cooked by a Jew, right? OU okay, all the big agencies, even rice. You know, if you if you buy uh, rice cakes, they're puffed rice that are they're, they're not officially Yisrael. And those are valid, acceptable halachic authorities that allow those particular things to be eaten, even though they are not cooked by a Jew. Now, to be fair, there are people who are machmer, but they're not machmer because they made up a chumrah. They're machmer because there's other difference of opinion, and they want to rely on the other opinions that say that those things are considered olah sholim. And therefore, they're consistent about it. The Hasidic, the Lubavitch, the Sotner, and many of the others are strict when it comes to canned beans, when it comes to potato chips, certain cereals. And you will be going to the kosher stores in those areas and you will be able to find Bishli Yisrael potato chips, Bishli Yisrael tuna, Bishli Yisrael beans. They will not buy regular beans at the store, only the Bishli They're going to have a, sh- a Shalom Zohar and they use chickpeas. They'll buy. They'll buy the ones that are in, in the kosher in the kosher stores only. Similarly, rice cakes, all those things, you'll see them with marked as being Bishli Yisrael. Okay, but it's not necessarily. It's not necessary unless you, you want to be mocker But there's a valid, valid opinions that allow it. For example, potatoes. The Ruch the Hashulchan is one that says potatoes is not considered Ola Shokan Walachim. and he qualifies it by not explaining that what does it mean not Ola sholchem olachem, it means that it's common man's food. Even if it can't, and he says it, even if it can also be served at a king's table, that doesn't change the fact that it's accessible to the common man. Once it's accessible to the common man, it's common man's food. Which, by the way, in this day and age, a lot of things have become accessible to the common man that were, that were not accessible, accessible before. Things have changed. But but also, also, there's some people that hold anything which is a side dish. Not is considered not Ola shokhamla. That's a little bit more of a more Linient. lenient. Mm-hmm. Yes, I don't rely on that.
1: Since this is controversial, I'd like to bring up one more controversial thing, and I'm sure there are many more, where Hashgachos may be going the extra mile when they don't have to. And for people who are struggling to keep kosher, whether they're traveling or they have food restrictions, should know.
0: I I just want to stress that you always need to, if you are going to go traveling and you want to say, can I go to a vegan restaurant? If you don't know 100% clearly what goes on in a restaurant, ask a question. I, I or others will be able to guide you how to go ahead. While you're traveling, I get questions like that all the time. I'm going to Portugal. I'm going here. Uh, there's no asko. What can I eat? What can I not eat? It's it's possible to, to be done. For example, if you're traveling to Portugal and you think, well, I can just have the bread. What's the big deal? They use lard. and What do they use? Lard. And Italy also use lard, especially northern Italy, and a lot of bread, a lot of products. So you have to know. You can't just say, hey, in America, usually the they, they never cook with lard. It's always going to be oil, so I, I can buy it without a problem. No, you have to know. But if you do know, then there are many, many things a person can't eat when when they go. If they go to a vegan restaurant, obviously the bread is not going to be with lard. So it will be a different situation. It's always good to ask somebody to, to guide you because there are certain things you may not know. It is easy to be done. It is something which I've advised many people who are traveling how to make their trip a lot more enjoyable than they thought it would be able to be. So... The situation with the Impossible Burger came out was the uh, story where the Impossible Burger is one of those vegan meats. Like they, they're making all these different products nowadays, uh, meat products. And they, they have the Ashkak of the OU. It's uh, certified the Impossible Burger. They came up with a new product called Impossible Pork. And the OU decided they're not going to certify Impossible Pork, even though it the ingredients are kosher, but they don't like the name pork. And this raised a big uh, tumult in the kosher world. As a Matter of fact, I was approached by two podcasts. one I'm sorry, one was a newspaper interview article, Another was a podcast to discuss, and besides yours, to discuss this particular issue. People are very, very upset about it, and they're, for example, they're saying, "Well, bakos, bacon bits is kosher called bakos, bacon bits. They've been giving us gakka for so many years already. You have uh, the fake shrimps, the fake lobsters, even stuff that are shaped like shrimp." with big OU certifications on them. You have things called turkey bacon that, that they call bacon. I think I and, opened and up a
1: can of worms. So in two sentences, what do you think about that?
0: I think that it was an overreach and I think it was a big mistake to go ahead and say that it cannot become kosher. Because in, in matter of fact, I believe number one is the learning experience. If people have a question about it, you go explain to them, hey, just because it's called bacon doesn't make it not kosher. We, we certify, every, we supervise it. Every, all the ingredients are kosher. It's not a problem. And secondly, I believe it becomes one step closer to Mashiach, because according to this farm, the Sfarim, the Khazir is a pig. I'm to speak out that the word Khazir comes from the word lachzor, to return. And that means that when Mashiach comes, the pig will return to become kosher. It's already halfway there. So if we already have a kosher taste of a burger called burger, a possible burger, a pork, I mean, taste of pork, I believe it's uh, significant that Mashiach is coming even closer. That's... Such a beautiful thought. Yeah, maybe even we don't have to wait till the pork becomes kosher itself. This is enough. Maybe you guys say, hey, we'll stop right here. Machine can come ready. You know, <laughs> who knows?
1: Yeah. Okay. So this has been so amazing having you on. I really appreciate you showing up and sharing all your incredible knowledge and experience with us. And we were
0: all over the place, though. I hope that there was a certain sense of continuity. <laughs> in the, you know, if anybody has any further the questions, they can, they can contact me. I'll elaborate on any other the things they want to know. Uh, Absolutely.
1: Thank you so, so much for this. and, And
0: appreciate everything. Take care.
1: Thank you so much for sticking around until the end. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do reach out with your comments and thoughts. Feel free to join the WhatsApp group. The link should be in the show notes, as well as keep referring clients to me for my podcast launch service. I really love helping people like you start podcasts just like me. And as promised, next week, we will have an episode all about parents who feel like they are lacking that emotional connection with their children and how to navigate that. So stay tuned for that and enjoy the rest of your week.